Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The pound's reaction to news on Brexit. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston on Bloomberg Radio. A virus takes over the world and shakes the economy to its core. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week threw us all for a bit of a loop, including here on Wall Street Week. Like most of the rest of us, we're now pretty much working from home or from some other remote location. It looks like the only thing that matters is the coronavirus and what it's doing to our lives and what it's doing to our economy. We start this week on Wall Street itself. The New York Stock Exchange closed its trading floor because of the coronavirus, but kept trading nonetheless online. You know the results. The market posted its biggest one-day move up since 1933, but it's still headed toward its worst month since 2008. But whatever the ups and the downs, the question is, are the markets really working? How can they price future earnings when the companies themselves haven't a clue? That's where we started with Stacey Cunningham, CEO of the New York Stock Exchange. The markets are functioning properly. There is certainly a lot of uncertainty around how the situation is going to continue to evolve, what the impact both short-term and long-term on companies and the economy more broadly. So a lot of that is uh, uncertain, but markets are, are always operating with some degree of uncertainty. It just happens to be higher than normal right now. It is important to recognize that they are functioning properly. So very, very different from you know, whether or not we like the prices or whether or not we even think the prices are reflective of where the economy is going. It's important to recognize the market doesn't actually reflect the strength of the economy. It reflects public sentiment about the strength of the economy. So it's reflecting how people are feeling, and that's why you're seeing these dramatic moves. And clearly we're seeing a much wider band of possible outcomes in the market on any given day. We're seeing an enormous volatility right now. But is that market sentiment that you refer to, is that really a matter of what we think earnings are going to be or whether we think these companies are actually going to make it or not? 
I, I think it, it's a reflection of how people are feeling about those things. And so people aren't quite sure what, what their, the impact for their overall personal financial stability is going to be, what the impact of small to mid-sized businesses is going to be, and what the ripple, ripple effects that will have on the economy might look like, how some of the larger companies that have dramatic exposure to coronavirus, uh, you know, the, the effects of the coronavirus, certainly how long it's going to take them to recover from, from all those things. So, the, like I said, the market's not pricing all of that in, but it's pricing in how investors are feeling about that. The situation is evolving so quickly every day we learn so much more. I mean, it certainly feels to me like each day feels like a week and each week feels like a month. And we are really very quickly evolving. That you know, The situation is so rapidly evolving that I, I do think people are reacting to new information by the minute. There have been times when the markets have not functioned because of circuit breakers. It just shut down and said, let's not trade for a while so people can really cool their emotions. Uh, have you considered at all the possibility of suspending the market for a longer period of time? Some big players on Wall Street have raised that possibility at various stages, saying, look, there's too much panic. Let's just take a hiatus for a few days. Absolutely not. We are absolutely not considering doing that. And it's really important that we even stop the dialogue around it, in my opinion, because the fear that the markets might unexpectedly close is enough to put selling pressure on the close. And no one in a position of power to make that, that change is talking about that. No one is, is no one at the exchange level. The exchanges all feel the same way. The, the uh, Treasury feels the same way. The SEC feels the same way. They've all made public statements about the markets needing to remain open. And there's a good reason for that. It's because investors need to have access to their money. And it can have an increased uh, effect on panic in the market if you do shut down the market. The reason why we have market-wide circuit breakers is because they're a response. They're, they are a well-calculated, well-studied, and implemented response that we took, in not during the time of stress, but in reaction to the 1987 crash, so that we would be ready for a scenario should it arise again. We don't regularly use them because we're not usually in, those, in that state, but we have used them four times in this month to date. And that's the, the mechanism that was agreed when, when you had time to think about it and have a rational approach. The decision was you can't close markets, but let's pause them so investors get 15 minutes to understand what's happening, to take a deep breath, to assess the situation, and react appropriately. The circuit breakers have been functioning the way they're intended to function, closing the markets would be, would be the wrong thing. It's not going to change the underlying concerns and that's putting pressure on the market in itself. It's not going to, it, it will have, have the likelihood of penting up more selling pressure during the market closure, and it denies people of access to their funds when they need it most. So certainly that's not being considered. Stacey, are you happy with the circuit breakers and the way they've worked, uh, or do you think it's going to be time, certainly once we get past this, which I hope is not too far in the future, when we should revisit some of them? They were imposed, as I recall, in 1987. Have you learned anything from the last couple of weeks that would say, you know, we should rethink some aspects of the circuit breakers? Yes, and, and, and every time we have a market event, the industry comes together and we analyze it and go through the postmortem process of saying, hey, what did we learn and what do we, what, what do we think we can change so that we in further enhance the resiliency of markets? 1987, that postmortem resulted in the market-wide circuit breakers. They've been changed since then. So when they were first introduced, they were introduced by the Brady Commission. They were based on the Dow Jones, not the broader S&P 500. They were based on points, not percentage moves. So they've evolved over time to be based now on the S&P 500 index to be based on, on a 7% you know, move in the market. We absolutely will, after we get through this, take a step back and say, what did we learn and where can we further make changes? I do expect we might change some of the levels 
based on the fact that the futures for the S&P 500 index end up in a limit state at down 5%, which makes you lose some of that transparency when you know you're going to trigger a market-wide circuit breaker at 7%. In the meantime, we've been leveraging the S&P 500, the SPY ETF, as a proxy for what that index would be doing if it had not been limited to a 5% move. And that's, um, you know, that, that's, I think those are the types of things that we'll take a look at after, after these events and see if there's further room for improvement. That was Stacey Cunningham of the New York Stock Exchange. Coming up, we're pretty much all working from home now. We talk with the man who's making that possible, Chuck Robbins of Cisco. This is Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Teleworking, it's become the buzzword of 2020, and Cisco Systems provides much of the critical backbone, making it possible for millions of Americans. We talked with Cisco Chairman and CEO Chuck Robbins about what the pandemic has meant for the world of remote working. Uh, Look, we've seen unprecedented volumes. We are, to your point, uh, critical infrastructure for working from home and, and the Internet service providers that are servicing all of, uh, all of us who are trying to work from home. I'll give you some statistics. Uh, we launched both free cloud security offers and free WebEx offers. And um, in the first 24 hours of putting that offer out, we had 240,000 new users sign up. And this is a platform that, you know, before this crisis was running 300 million users per month. Uh, we are now at, uh, we're doing four and a half million meetings a day. That's that doesn't even include one-on-ones that are occurring on the platform. Uh, we're at 12 billion meeting minutes through March so far. And just to put it in perspective, in the United States, during any one-hour period, we will do 100 million meeting minutes in just one hour in the United States right now. So we've seen incredible demand. I'll tell you, our teams are tired. <laughs> but you know, when you're when you're talking about a platform that is now trying to support three to four to five times the volume that it ever uh, was built for four weeks ago, uh, they've done yeoman's work, frankly, to be where we are. So, Chuck, have you been able to identify any weaknesses in the system? Because you, no one was prepared for this sort of onslaught, none of us, anywhere, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, have you noticed any weaknesses or any things that you can be improving? What are those weaknesses? What are you doing? Primarily, David, it's just about capacity. And, uh, you know, we have tremendous relationships with the large service providers around the world and they've been incredible partners for us. Uh, we had a, a, one of the major ones in the U.S. We needed capacity this week. I sent him a text at 6 o'clock at night, and by midnight they had done the work and increased the capacity. So it's just related to that, and there, there are minor things that will happen during the day. You know, we need everybody to be patient as we're just seeing these volumes that these platforms weren't built for. I mean, I, I've joked with our team. I should have told you when we spec this these technologies that you need to build them to have everyone in the world working from home. And uh, clearly we didn't do that. But the team, I I have to tell you, I am so proud of what our team has accomplished because they're working seven by 24. We're trying to put more resources with them because I'm worried about them right now, actually. Uh, What's your own experience with working from home as a practical matter? Is that giving you a different perspective on actually the product you produce? First of all, I think we all like working from home periodically. I think we all miss the office tremendously. But, uh, you know, for our employees, we, we've, we've looked at this across three vectors, right? What are we doing for our employees? What are we doing for our customers? And what are we doing for our communities? And even from home, we're able to execute on all of that. So, you know, we have all of our employees are working from home. We've, we've stated that we'll continue to pay our contract and hourly workers. We're doing 
a video meeting with all our employees every week right now, the entire company. And uh, we're, we have medical experts that are on. We have one later tonight where we'll do uh, a Q&A. And we have 20,000, 30,000 employees joining uh, these Q&A sessions just so we can keep everybody up to date on what's happening in the world. And uh, it's, it's working fine for us right now. I think everybody's anxious to get back, but I think right now it's, it's working great. So as you say, you've got your hands full right now, just getting day to day. But is it too soon to start thinking about longer term uh, implications for your business, for the business overall? I wonder if everybody who has learned to work from home will necessarily go back to the office once we're past this. Well, I think that the, the capacity and the ability to work from home will continue. And I think what this is helping people understand is that it's possible. And you can be productive from home. So I think that I do think that this will change how we think about it in the future. Uh, but it's too early for us to really understand. And I told our, our leadership team, look, we're, we're not going to understand any structural changes to our business until we get to the other side of this. So I'll tell you, David, the big thing that we're really worried about uh, beyond our customers, beyond our employees, are our communities. And. You know, we, it's great to see the package being passed in Washington today, but we've been trying to spearhead. You think about what's happening with our homeless communities, with those who are, you know, one financial crisis away from, from being on the streets. I mean, these are the people we have to focus on right now. And we've been working very hard in Silicon Valley with our, uh, our public counterparts to actually try to make sure we're taking care of them as well. Well, I know that Cisco has stepped up and made a substantial contribution to try to help the effort. Let's talk about your employees. You've mentioned them a couple of times. At the same time that we need you more than ever, you also have to worry about the health and safety of your own employees. How do you strike that balance, Chuck? Well, we err on the side of safety for our employees. We were really early on work from home, and we, we were making those decisions around the globe as we saw this virus spread. And then, candidly, we were very quick to just say we're we're, everyone's working from home. Now, we're blessed that we have technology. Everyone has this technology. And, um, and then we've also been, we've, but, but our employees have been in the middle of this crisis response. We had employees in the hospitals that were being built in China helping stand up networking equipment, delivering video units. We've been doing it in countries all around the world. We're working on trying to network enable these parking lot labs that are being put up right now. So our teams, many are working from home, but there's a, there's a small percentage of our employees who are, who are working in the middle of this crisis right now trying to help uh, get us to the other side. So we continue to do everything we can to take care of them as well, but we also have to make sure we're doing our part. Chuck, do you have a sense of what this means to Cisco as a business, just in terms of dollars and cents, revenue, costs, things like that? The demand is way up, as you've described, dramatically up. At the same time, are you concerned about the ability of some of your customers to pay? Well, you know, to be honest with you, David, we're not worried about it right now. We're, we're actually just trying to get through this crisis. And so whatever our customers need, we're prioritizing our supply chain capacity. You know, we historically, we would prioritize that by our biggest customers who you know, who were, who were the loudest. And frankly, now we've put a whole process in place to prioritize our supply chain capacity for those companies who are in the middle of trying to solve this crisis. So uh, we're not thinking much about what happens longer term. We're just trying to make sure we're doing our part to get through it right now. And uh, we'll continue to do that. And then we'll figure it out later. Chuck, what do you want to see from the government at this point? Speed. <laughs> I think we need to see, we need to see speed. I, I think about this crisis from in three ways, right? There's, there's the medical response, which we need to continue to support those heroes who are out there. I mean, they are, these people are doing unbelievable work. There's the financial uh, 
response, which we now have, and we need to get that money into the hands of the people who need it. And then the third is making sure that our customers and all of the companies around the world can remain as productive as possible as we go through this this different way of working. And uh, you know, we just need we need speed. And I think that to the extent these small businesses can have a, a degree of confidence and these individuals can have a degree of confidence, then it will take a lot of stress out of the system. That was Chuck Robbins, CEO of Cisco. Coming up on Wall Street Week, the world waited for a monumental stimulus package from Washington. And at the end of the week, it got it. We talked with the woman most responsible, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. This is Wall Street Week. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This was the week when Congress passed a spending package that would have been unimaginable just a month ago. Over $2 trillion to cushion some of the blow to workers and companies from bringing an economy to a screeching halt, or at least to slow it down. We talked with the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, on the eve of the historic House vote. We do recognize that certain industries are going to need federal funds, and we want those, those industries to know that we have, there are conditions uh, to make sure that workers are protected, that they stay employed, that they're on the payroll, and that their, their rights are protected. It's very important. Strong infusion of funds for small business. We're very excited about that. And that is, for the first time, some grants in small business uh, administration. And that process facilitated greatly to aid small businesses, which are, as you know, the lifeblood of our economy, the job creators, the wealth creators. So very, very important. So again, uh, many of these changes that changed it from trickle down to bubble up uh, took a, a matter of 48 or so hours. But that would not be called a delay. That would be called an improvement. Fair, fair enough. Uh, let's talk about small businesses for a moment, because as you say, they really employ a lot of the people in the country. We've seen a lot of layoffs already at things like restaurants and things. How confident are you that that money can get to those small businesses? Larger businesses have more capital. They can tide it over and keep people on payroll. Smaller ones can't. Small Business Administration, are they up to that task? Well, it, I spoke with the Secretary of the Treasury, Mr. Treasury, Mr. Mnuchin, and we have been talking about this for a while, uh, that we cannot let, leave it up to the process of the SBA. Uh, the, there's an uh, initiative that he put forward that the banks could do the direct lending with the imprimatur of the SBA, and that would make this all go very much faster. And that's, that will be a vast improvement, really, 
uh, necessary because of the urgency of getting those funds into the hands of, of the uh, small businesses. And actually, there's also a loan forgiveness in there in terms of rent and utilities and the rest, depending on how uh, a business thrives with the resources that they receive in a loan. You mentioned also the oversight that's now in this bill, as I understand it, for some of the disbursements to the larger corporations. Some might call it a bailout. Is that oversight after the fact, or will it be advanced consultation so they'll be able to say, no, it shouldn't be going to that company, or do you have to wait for it to go out and then afterwards remonstrate with them? Well, there are a couple different categories. For example, the airline industry has a very direct formula that part of the money, uh, nearly 50-50, but part of the money goes in loans to uh, to to the airlines and part of it goes in grants because that goes directly to the employees and that is the condition there. This money just touches base there but goes directly to the employees to keep them employed. Uh, and then the other funds do have their conditions about no buybacks, no dividends, no bonuses, all of that kind of, uh, uh, of provisions because people felt very burned about what happened uh, in, in uh, 2008, 2009. But it is, um, uh, in terms of the uh, bigger pot, which, which is at the, largely the discretion of the administration, uh, we, we insisted that there be uh, an uh, oversight on that, and that was in our House bill and in the Senate bill. And it said that for the funds that would be released in that process, uh, that there would be an, an inspector general uh, to oversee, have oversight over that process, and in addition to that, a five-person panel of Cong that Congress appoints uh, to oversee how that money goes out as well. Uh, this is absolutely essential. It could not be, for example, with all due respect to the Secretary, he could put out money. We wouldn't even know about it until f six months later who may have gotten it, whether it was appropriate in, the, uh, in terms of the priority it should have at this time where the lives and the livelihood of the American people are at stake. There are different regional points of view about that and uh, just uh, the role of government points of view. Uh, but we want every, you know, again, we don't want to keep any resources from anybody who really needs it in order to, again, uh, help our economy grow at, at this time. But it really has to be coronavirus specific. That has been our condition from day one. This is our third bill. Our first bill was about emergency. Our second bill was about emergency. Our third bill, which is this bill, is about mitigation, trying to, to mitigate for the damage that is being done to our economy, as well as continue to meet the emergency health needs of the American people. Our next bills will lean toward recovery, uh, how we can create good-paying jobs as we go forward, perhaps building the infrastructure of America. All of these things are, are being done in a bipartisan way. But we do have to uh, weigh in to make sure the leverage is more equal rather than uh, favoring trickle-down rather than bubble-up from the workers. That was Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Coming up, we need our health care teams around the country healthy as they work around the clock to treat the exploding number of COVID-19 cases. We talk with Mike Roman, CEO of 3M, whose company is on the spot for producing critical N95 masks as supplies run out. That's next on Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. All of us, financial titans, business executives, government officials, and moms and dads spent time this week learning about how you fight a pandemic. 
about social distancing, about washing our hands constantly, about disinfectants. And all of it was for a single purpose, to avoid overwhelming a healthcare system that is already stretched to the breaking point. But if our doctors and our nurses are to do the job we need them to do, we need the personal protective equipment that keeps them from getting the virus themselves. And 3M is the company we need to manufacture that protective equipment. We talked with Mike Roman, chairman and CEO of 3M, about the company's capacity to do just that and what can be done to ramp up and quickly. Yeah, so David, thank you for having me on. Thank you for getting me back on. That N95 respirator is at the center of what we are focused on. Our priority starts with the safety of our people, but the safety of public is critical. And we have a unique responsibility to deliver those N95 respirators to the healthcare workers on the front lines. And we, uh, we accelerated to maximum production globally, including in the U.S., uh, beginning back in January, and we are currently operating at that level. We produce 35 million of the N95 respirators each month out of our manufacturing facilities in the U.S. Uh, we have prioritized those respirators for the healthcare workers in the front line. We uh, can uh, we can continue to add to that capacity. We're at 35 million today, and and really delivering to the greatest needs around uh, around the U.S. We're, we're all becoming familiar with these numbers now. We hear from the president, from the vice president. Give us a sense, if you need to increase production, because it sounds like right now we can't get enough of these things, uh, how long does it take for you to increase above that 35 million uh, range? Well, we're working with government partners, with other companies, looking at all ways to increase our capacity. We have made investments. Our, you know, our strategy has been to keep idle capacity available for times like this. We've brought all that online. We are adding to that with additional investments that we had in the pipeline, and then we are working to continue to add capacity further out as we go through the year. So it's, it's kind of in stages. Near term, we can add some incremental capacity. We're working with other companies to look at alternatives to add even more to that. Uh, so we, we are striving to add more each month, and then as we get out later in the year, we think we can increase significantly with uh, additional uh, production lines that will come on online for us. Mike, give us a sense of the relationship with the government here, because we have heard about 3M more than once from the president, from the vice president. So I understand Vice President Pence actually went out and visited you at one point. Uh, is this a matter of cooperation, support? Are they invoking the Defense Production Act with respect to 3M? Well, we've been working very closely with the government. We've been working you know, with, uh, with Vice President Pence from his visit, looking at how to make sure that we can shift what have been the industrial N95 respirators into healthcare. So it was really appreciate the, the emergency use authorization out of the FDA and then the PREP Act amendment, which enabled us to be able to deliver our industrial respirators, that N95, to the healthcare workers at the front line. That was the first big step. And so we worked together on that. Uh, the Defense Production Act really has enabled us to work together on making sure we are getting the respirators to the most critical needs around the country. And our, our teams are working together with FEMA, with Health and Human Services, making sure that we are delivering where the needs are greatest. So it, it's a partnership that, that really uh, has been very effective as we've come through the month of March. Mike, you're right at the very center of a true national global crisis, in fact. What in your past experience may have prepared you for this or prepared 3M for this sort of unprecedented demand, not just demand, but need for the safety and health of the American public? 
Yeah, we learned, I would say, coming out of SARS and H1N1, that we, as a leader in providing these personal protective equipment solutions, and, and really the respirators being critical center of that, that we needed to be able to lead in times of crisis. And so we made the decision to invest in capacity that stayed idle under normal circumstances. Normally, a majority of our respirators, that N95, goes to industrial use, protecting workers in difficult environments. In times like this, we have to both surge our capacity, and we've almost doubled our output since the beginning of the year as we came into the year expecting normal business demand. And then we, uh, you know, we, we are able to surge everywhere around the world. We manufacture in all regions of the world. So the U.S. was very important, and we ramped that up to the $35 million, but we ramped up globally to over $100 million, uh, per month. So we are... We are surging everywhere around the world. Moving beyond the N95, there's something that I'm learning about called the Powered Air Purifying Respirator, which is the PAPR. There was an announcement that 3M made together with GE and with Ford and the UAW. Explain to us what those devices are and what the nature of this joint venture is. Yeah, this is, I I think this is a great example of how companies have stepped up. They've, They've responded to the call to action to do everything they can to help serve the public safety and the needs of the healthcare workers. This is a great example. Ford reached out to us uh, to work together on anything that we could do to increase our capacity and, and the solutions we can bring to the market. And this powered air purifier is an area that it's, a, it's an important product for use in, in some of the healthcare uh, environments. And, and Ford can bring expertise. Uh, they can bring skills where it's needed most for us and help us uh, increase our production of, <clears throat> of those powered air purifiers. So it's a, it was really, a, I'm really pleased with uh, Ford's response and the help they've been giving us. Uh, are there other possible joint ventures like that you may be working on or at least taking a look at that might expand our p- capacity for giving protection equipment to healthcare workers? Well, we're, we're looking at all across the supply chain. What can we do to increase our capacity? So we're working with a number of companies how can we increase the output of our lines? How can we bring new production faster? That's one of the things that we can do is get what would be a normal, a longer lead time to bring on new capacity. How do we shorten that? Companies are stepping into that. There's also the logistics side. Normally, the supply chain is very efficient, but in times like this where we are, we are changing daily our, our working environments, we, we are finding people that are stepping up to help us expedite our products. We now have the ability to ship directly from our plants to areas that we need uh, really expedite overnight orders that, that are critical to uh, needs on the front line. So it's been across that whole you know, supply chain spectrum and, and maybe most important in expanding capacity, but help all the way back to raw materials has been, uh, been very, very important the way companies have stepped up. Mike, give us a sense of who's deciding where these N95s or PAPRs are going, because we have a crying need for them. We hear from Governor Cuomo here in New York daily about the shortage of them. Who's making that decision about where these things go, because we do have a shortage? Yeah, so we're working with Health and Human Services and FEMA to make sure we are prioritizing uh, where they see the needs are greatest. We work directly with the hospitals themselves, the healthcare providers, and we're working to deliver on the greatest need, the urgency. We delivered uh, this over the last week. We delivered uh, now a million respirators into New York City, for example, responding to that urgent need there. We uh, ship product into both Washington State and New York City. So it's, it's really 
prioritizing where the needs are greatest and getting help from every angle on identifying that. Now we, we, uh, and we, we keep visibility right through to those, those hospitals and those, those healthcare workers on the front line. Mike, you also are running a very large corporation. You have something like 96,000 employees. You said earlier, first priority is the safety, health and safety of your own people, but also the health and safety of the American people. How are you balancing that at this point? Because we need your people in there manufacturing these things. At the same time, they're taking some risk being outside their houses. Yes, and we are, we are managing that in our operations. We, we've been, like every other company, we've been adapting as we've gone. We have uh, everyone who can work from home works from home. That's not practical in the factories where we're producing these critical safety products. And so we have procedures and operations that we put in place. Uh, we, are, we have a robust uh, planning process. We have uh, processes where we are keeping, uh, having our, our own workers using respirators. We're implementing cleaning and disinfectant, disinfecting cycles, really supporting their safety in the factories. So there's a, a, a standard operating process that we put in place. We've escalated to the most critical safety levels for that. And that enables us to keep operating in those plants and, and other operations that are so important at this time. Mike, you're trying to strike that balance between the protection of your people and, on the other hand, really manufacturing things we desperately need. We as a country are going through a version of that right now. We heard from Larry Kudlow, the chief economic advisor to the president, saying, you know what, we think we have to start bringing some of the economy back online by, by the end of the month, which would be next week. What, what do you think about that? Where do you strike that balance more broadly for the populace? Should we be letting people back out of their houses, at least in some locations, for the sake of the economy? Well, when we put our focus on the safety of our people right now, we are, we are following all of the guidance that, that we're hearing from uh, and, and being directed from the government. And, and that's both uh, local, state, and federal. And we've been able to manage our, you know, our operations around that. And, and getting that balance, as you said, is critical. So uh, it is, uh, it is unprecedented, that the challenges that we're facing, but it's something that with these kinds of uh, procedures in place, protecting our broader workforce, protecting the people in the plants, uh, we will continue to, to do our best to, to operate uh, in, in support of the needs out there. That was Mike Roman, chairman and CEO of 3M. This has been another edition of Wall Street Week. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.